This episode of Out Alive is brought to you by Backpacker Basecamp. Go beyond the pages of Backpacker Magazine and join Backpacker Basecamp. Our new membership program connects you with exclusive benefits to get you out even more. Gear deals, video tutorials, exclusive newsletters, expert advice, members-only giveaways, and more. Join today at backpacker.com slash Basecamp. Our first season at the Out Alive podcast has been a survey of nightmares and worst-case scenarios. There was the pro skier buried alive in an avalanche, a Montana hiker mauled by a grizzly twice, a man snake bit hours from help in South Carolina. The list goes on and on. I'm having mild anxiety just thinking about it, to be honest. But it always ends with the same question for me. Why? Why did these people survive when others in similar scenarios don't? I think about this a lot, almost as if listening to these stories will unlock some kind of secret that will keep me alive. Maybe forever. Who knows? So, who lives and who dies? Maybe the answer to that will keep you alive, too. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. Survival is part of our regular beat here at Backpacker, and we're always finding interesting little breadcrumbs. In 2008, we found that unroped falls are the outdoors' number one killer, and the majority of victims are hikers, not climbers. Right behind that, insufficient experience and errors in judgment played a role in one-third of the 3,593 search and rescue operations in the national park system just last year. The third most common cause? Poor physical conditioning, which is implicated in 22% of all cases. But we wanted to know more. We'll be breaking this episode into three parts. The brain and survival— who lives and who dies, and finally, the drift, how small decisions can lead to big mistakes. Creating this show, we heard again and again from survivors that their mind went into a sort of primal state where the only focus was on survival. I can't even stress how much, like, People always want to know, like, oh, were you thinking about your dad? Or were you thinking about dying? Or, you know, what were you thinking about? And honestly, like, I could not think about anything. My brain wouldn't let me think about anything other than 100% focus on not panicking. A number of people have asked me when I was in the past on different interviews, well, you were being attacked. Did you think you were going to die? And I, I really don't think that that ever came to my mind. Because when you're in that survival mode and this bear is on top of you biting you, the, the idea of dying wasn't in my head. It was like how to survive and like what to do to, to, to make it through this. I had to collect myself. And within 90 minutes or so, I made a decision to survive. And that was a decision of will. 
So we wanted to go deeper and find out what is happening cognitively in your brain when you're in a survival scenario. Dr. John Leach is a senior research fellow at the University of Portsmouth who studies exactly that. When I first started in this area, I was looking at shipwreck survival. And what I was asking was what what made the survivors so special? And I looked into that and I was investigating it, I think, for about two and a half years. And, uh, and after two and a half years, I got absolutely nowhere. I had no answers at all. And then one day something struck me and... I began to I realize that I had been asking the wrong question. The question I was interested in concerned the, what made survivors so special that they were able to survive and others perished. The question I should have been asking is, why do so many people perish when there's no need to perish? So it wasn't so much that survivors were in any way exceptional. It was that something was going wrong in other people. And once I twisted that question around, then I, then I started to make some progress. It became clear that when people are under threat, the higher order cognitive functions, known, known particularly as executive functions, so your higher order decision making, your planning, your forward thinking and everything, is impaired. This is a classic example of lost person behavior. We know that when a person gets lost, they will often panic and wander blindly, counter to conventional advice, to find something familiar, something they've seen before. Often what happens is they simply become more and more lost. It also suggested that working memory was impaired. And there's two components to working memory. It's a processing capacity and storage capacity. So the storage capacity, the working memory, it can only hold so much and no more. And there's a processing capacity. In other words, it can process the information at a maximum rate and no faster. And what we found is that in the immediate bit of threat, both the capacities are restricted. So you've got less working memory capacity to play with. We also found that higher order functions, such as executive function, decision-making, planning, and so on, is also impaired when people are under duress. And that can extend for much longer than just the immediate threat period. And we know now that what is happening is that the working memory capacity, the higher order executive function, which is in simple terms, it's housed in the front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex or the frontal lobes. Well, that is very energy intensive. It's a, it's a luxury item we've got. It's also very expensive to run. So it uses up a lot of glucose, a lot of energy, and it's very slow. Now, what seems to happen is that under threat, when you're perceived under threat, when you seem to be in a survival situation, when you are aware that your life is under threat, the prefrontal cortex is downgraded in importance and effectively it is taken offline. The resources are then diverted to the other two-thirds of the brain that deals with the moment-to-moment operation of your behavior in the environment and of your own body's behavior like breathing and heart rate and all that. And this makes sense because what you're doing now is you're boosting the moment-to-moment responding to the environment and you're downgrading, diverting resources from the luxury, expensive, slow-working prefrontal cortex because you need to deal with the moment. And if you do not deal with that moment, then you haven't got a future to worry about. So from the evolutionary adaptive perspective, that does make sense. However, what this means is if we're talking about experience or you're talking about formal training, that makes a big difference because if you're training, then you're putting together adaptive appropriate behaviors 
to respond to a threat. It is the front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the bit of you know the slow luxury part that does all this training. It puts the behaviors together, it puts them together in the right sequence. And once they are together, it then reallocates them to another part of the brain. Now, we take a non-survival situation here, um, learning to drive a car. Now, when you first get in the car with your instructor and you're starting to drive, everything tends to be rather confusing. Once you start learning, after a few lessons, you start to coordinate the motor behaviors with the uh, sensory input. So you're looking around, you're looking in the mirror, you're looking out the windscreen, you're putting the mechanical bits together, you're using your legs, you're using your arms, you're turning the wheel, you're thinking ahead. And then after a while, once you get more experienced, then the sequences for driving a motor car that was being done, carried out in the prefrontal cortex, are now clumped together and they are placed in what, what are known as the subcortical circuits. They are outside of the prefrontal cortex, so they're in the other two-thirds of the brain. They're there. What this means now is that when you drive, you drive from home to work or wherever you go, you're doing it semi-automatically. Where this comes into play is that when you enter a threat situation, the prefrontal cortex is downgraded. It's effectively taken offline. It's downgraded. So you're not able to think through these motor actions for driving. But you already have them embedded in the other two-thirds of the brain which is functioning and has been boosted. So its functions are boosted so you can respond, which is why you're taught to do an emergency brake stop. What you're doing here then is under threat in a survival situation, the training that you have received has been put together in the correct sequence, embedded in the two thirds of the brain that will still be functioning under threat, and it responds to environmental triggers. So at that level, in the immediate threat, your training and your experiences are laying down behaviors to which you've stored and to which can be triggered by an environmental threat trigger. We've seen the effects of preparation becoming automatic and how it saves the lives of survivors in several of the stories we've covered this first season. Remember Amy Engerbretson from episode one who was caught in an avalanche? Her quick thinking and the training of those around her ultimately saved her life. The whole slope just shifts underneath me. And in that instant, my like mind completely switched. So I pulled my airbag right away. And I think this is why you practice, um, because at that point I kind of just like turned on everything that I'd practiced. And so I didn't have to think like, what are my steps here? So that gives you getting through that impact phase is the advantage. The second thing, of course, is that if you've got the experience, you've got the knowledge, what we know is that the prefrontal cortex bounces back quite quickly in people who have got the training, who have got the experience, who've been there before in some form or other, either in a real situation through experience or through training where it's been simulated. So on both those occasions, you you can actually respond Uh, adapt quicker to a survival event than if you've got no training. My prefrontal cortex is working fine right now. I'm not under any threat, but we are still trying to figure out if there's any sense to who lives and who dies in survival situations. We're looking for a code. 
In part one, we talked about the survival mind, the what of survival. Now let's talk about the who. And that led us to a famous case study. In the spring of 1846, a group of nearly 90 emigrants left Springfield, Illinois, heading west on wagons. They got held up by a series of mishaps and made it to the Sierra Nevada range before they could go no further, and that's where they spent the winter of 1846-47. to Illness spread, supplies dwindled, the snow was relentless. Soon the living ate the dead, and the Donner Party became shorthand for woe, cold, desperation, and the end of the rope. But the survivors did come through with pretty good records on what happened that winter and to whom. As we dug into the Donner Party, we came across an article from the New York Times called Sex and the Survival of the Fittest. Calamities are a disaster for men, and that got our attention. The author, Dr. Donald Grayson, is an anthropologist and expert on the Donner Party and who also studies the sex of survival. First of all, women tend to do better than than men in situations of cold just because of their biology. Uh, they're better shielded uh, against cold because of, for a number of reasons, but that includes subcutaneous fat, uh, which provides them with uh, greater protection against cold because they're losing less heat to the environment. That's number one. Uh, number two is that men tend to be risk takers and women tend not to be. Uh, men also uh, are biologically better fit to do heavy labor. And that was explicitly mentioned as one of the things that put men at uh, greater risk. So men are, men are risk takers. Uh, women tend to be risk adverse. And since men are risk takers, that tends to make them more prone to bad things happening to them. Was there um, any reasoning you found behind why? This is David Gleisner, one of our associate producers who was interviewing Dr. Grayson. Women were more risk averse, and men were more risk taking. Oh, sure, it's called it's called reproducing successfully and um, having your kids to live to the age where they can re- reproduce themselves. Uh, that's pretty straightforward. Um, even with mice, if you look at it, it, I've done a lot of small mammal field ecology, and it turns out this is pointed out years ago in the literature that um, if you if you trap mice randomly. Uh, many kinds of small rodents randomly. You tend to get males. It, this is at night. You tend to get males more often than you get females because the males are out there cruising with the, while the women are staying, the women, the girl mice are staying, uh, staying closer to home. Um, the more risk prone you are uh, uh, as a male, uh, the better your chances of, of leaving offspring. Um, Women, on the other hand, are raising their kids. Uh, if they're risk-prone and they die, their kids are at, uh, obviously tremendous disadvantage. So risk-taking for males is, a, is kind of part of a, a reproductive strategy. Being risk-averse for females is the same thing. It's, part, it's, a very, it's also part of a reproductive strategy. And it seems like there is kind of a mix of biological and cultural or normative explanations for uh, survival, whether that's things like subcutaneous fat versus something like the men being the ones with the job to put up the tents. Um, so how much, how much of the survival of these parties would you say was owed to biology versus more of those cultural or normative influences? I'm going to say most of it. And um, 
I think your example is a great one. The women were, uh, the men were putting up the tents as opposed to the women because men tend to have greater upper body strength. Uh, with the Donner Party, uh, they probably, the Donner Party tried an untested route. And because the route was untested, uh, they tried it because they believed that the trail itself uh, was easy. But in fact, it wasn't. And they spent... Uh, in the Wasatch Range east of Salt Lake City, they spent a huge amount of time and a huge amount of effort cutting their way uh, through the forest to get their wagons through. It was the males who did that work. And that's not normative, that's biology. Um, men have greater upper body strength than, than women do, so they're better fit to do something uh, of that sort. Same thing with putting up tents. It was hard physical labor, and men are, are better better fit to do that kind of hard physical labor. The problem is that if you're in a context like these groups were in, uh, heavy snows, extreme cold, uh, the more heavy labor you do, the more energy you expend, and the more energy you expend, uh, the more apt you are to die. Here are the cold hard facts on gender in the Donner Party. Nearly twice as many men as women died, 57% of the 53 men as against 28% of the 34 women, and the men who died succumbed in much less time than did the women. Additionally, a subgroup of 15 tried to snowshoe out of the mountains to safety. All of the men died, and all of the women, seven, survived. Let's just put that into context for a moment. The Donner Party is not a perfect analog for our stories, which tend to be parties of more like one or two in short-term survival situations. Some of what happened to the men in the Donner Party can be attributed to the era in which it happened. No one today would argue that women aren't as capable of putting up tents or clearing trees. But modern survival statistics still support Dr. Grayson's point. The Western Journal of Medicine looked at this too. In a study called Morbidity and Mortality in the Wilderness, researchers examined injuries, illness, and deaths in eight national parks in California over a three-year period. They found that of the 78 mortalities, 78% were men. So if you're a guy on a trip that is about to go sideways, check your shirt for the big red bullseye. You might have the mark of death coded into your biology. Don't do anything the woman in your group wouldn't do though, and you'll probably be all right. That's science. For part three, we have a different kind of survival scenario. We tend to retell the stories where some grand event led to a sensational accident. But those stories are few and far between and not always the best case studies for learning about survival. Most of us will drift into a scenario where the cumulative effects of many choices become just as threatening as any animal attack or lightning strike. Dr. Leach explains. None of the survival situations that you witness, people drift into them. You are not suddenly lost. You drift into becoming lost. Even though all the signs and the signals are there around them, if only they would register them. They don't. They drift into it. And then having drifted into being lost, they get the realization that they're lost. And then that nice Sunday afternoon stroll amongst the mountains in the sunshine has now changed into a threatening environment. But the environment hasn't changed. 
environment hasn't changed at all. It's just their concept of it. And so we have a story from one of our own about exactly that. Hey there, my name is Jonathan Dorn. For a little bit more than 10 years, I was the editor-in-chief of Backpacker Magazine. And in that time, I had the privilege of publishing the very first survival issue of Backpacker. And I never thought that I would find myself potentially being in the magazine in some fashion, telling one of the stories that I edited and read and in some cases wrote. Uh, I, I, I assumed that in some fashion I was... Uh, almost unbeatable, that I could make those small decisions that were questionable ones and get away with them. Uh, But here I am. So to set the stage, my daughter, Abby, who was 19 years old at the time, had an opportunity to go and work for a summer with the Student Conservation Association about 30 miles deep into the Frank Church Wilderness, which is one of the biggest roadless areas in the lower 48. I was doing a trail crew job, so, you know, we were clearing trails and whatnot, and we didn't have any phones or email or anything like that, so we were communicating with letters, which is how I made the plan with my dad for him to come visit me. And knowing what I know about backpacking trips and solo hikes, I did an awful lot of research. I got my maps. I talked to the local ranger. I picked out a trail and a route that I was going to follow, and I alerted her and the trail boss to when I would be coming in, by which route. When I got on scene, everything started to change. And the original plan was that he was going to come up through Big Big Creek, which is a major trailhead, and come over and into the valley where I was working, which was the Chamberlain Valley. And... It's an easy trek. You can do... I shouldn't say easy. It would be easy for my dad. Um, And you could do it in a day if you were really pushing it, but a lot of people do it in two. So first of all, uh, one thing to know about the Frank Church wilderness is that cell reception uh, in the heart of the wilderness is non-existent and actually begins to fade shortly after you pass the wilderness boundary. And so as I was driving in and driving mostly on dirt roads deep in the wilderness that in some cases didn't see more than one car a day, I discovered that my uh, phone no longer had reception. And at the time, I thought, "Eh, no big deal. But then I started seeing signs about uh, forest fires, uh, wildfires that were taking place in the area. And I'd read about these, but I had not realized and not seen any reporting to indicate that those wildfires were taking place uh, in the area that I had planned to hike through. And in fact, the trailhead where I planned to park was the staging ground for about 400 uh, troops who were fighting the fires in the wilderness. And so as I was driving in, I made a decision, uh, a fateful one as it turned out, that parking at that trailhead was not going to be a good decision and that I should reroute and go another route in. So I pulled out my maps on the fly found a alternate route that instead of being a 30-mile hike on a fairly well-traveled trail, I mapped out a 48-mile route, but followed routes that on the map were shown as having been maintained. Again, another decision or assumption that would later um, prove faulty. So I, I drove to that alternate trailhead, and 
as you might know from thinking about it, without cell reception, I had no way of alerting my wife, my daughter, the trail boss, or the ranger, or anybody really, uh, that I was rerouting. That also meant that I got a late start, and rather than departing from the trail ahead around noon uh, to make the first day's mileage of about 10 miles, I was departing uh, around 6 p.m. and planning to hike uh, really only six or seven miles to take me down to uh, one of the forks of the Salmon River, uh, which is about a 5,000-foot descent from where I was starting. Shortly after uh, I got started, it started to get dark. I was following good trail, and then suddenly the trail disappeared. Um, I had a GPS with me, though. I had a map with me, and having done numerous off-trail hikes, many of them solo, over the last 25 years, I really didn't have much trepidation about that. I should have, at the time, um, just returned to my car. Uh, I should have known from reading many survival issues of Backpacker that these are the kind of small decisions that can come back to haunt you. So I went ahead. I, I blundered on ahead. Uh, the trail evaporated. I started just following a bearing. Uh, I knew I needed to intersect the river, and I was going to camp at the river that night. I continued um, down increasingly steep terrain, um, not really being able to follow a true bearing because of what was happening on the terrain. And, and that ultimately started putting me off track. And once I got off track, um, I um, uh, found myself in uh, talus-filled terrain that in a number of occasions – I slipped and slid and once slid down about 30 feet in a steep ravine that was full of talus and nearly not being able to stop myself, getting up and sensing a great void in front of me and realizing there was about a 30-foot cliff that I nearly went off. I was shaking. My adrenaline was pumping so hard that I could not stand up. I had to sit down. And it was so powerful that I, I literally almost couldn't think. It took me probably 10 minutes to calm down enough uh, to have a conscious thought about what to do next and made yet another faulty decision, which was to continue on through the night because I was so bound and determined to get to the river. I could hear it below me. I just wanted to get there. I should have just laid up and stayed there until dawn so I could navigate um, by light rather than in the dark. But I went on, uh, continued on, and... Made it down to the river um, very late that evening. And in the morning, woke up to find myself on a stretch of river that was bound almost completely by cliffs. I'd managed to get down to the river kind of by the only ravine that I could see uh, up or down the river, which then led in turn to the next fateful decision, which was to try to cross the river rather than to climb back up about 1,000 feet, which was the other choice to find the trail and to go upstream to the footbridge. And in attempting to cross the river, I thought I'd picked a good spot. I made it halfway across. And then you might see this coming. I was swept off my feet by the current. And the moment I lost my footing, I was immediately um, turned over on my back and I was floating rapidly downstream. I was unable to get my pack off simply because there was so much pressure pushing the pack against my back. And as I looked downstream, I could tell that there were rapids ahead. And I knew that going through those rapids could be fatal. So I 
turned over and swam for everything I was worth to the opposite bank at a, at a bend in the river and managed to, to grab onto a rock and claw my way up and out of the water, probably just a couple hundred yards short of those rapids. And at that moment, I realized that I'd really made not just a series of small, unfortunate decisions, but a pretty big mistake. I had put myself in the position by not being thoughtful of potentially not being able to go see my daughter and never seeing her or the rest of my family again. And so I took a couple hours uh, and really did some soul searching about that and how stupid I had been uh, before I continued. The rest of the trip was long and hard and tough, dry. Uh, I got dehydrated. Uh, I nearly got bit by a rattlesnake. Uh, but those things kind of paled in comparison to the, to the cliff I almost fell off and the river I almost didn't cross in terms of true survival moments. So normally we would finish hitches on Thursday and we finished on a Wednesday instead. And when we got back to camp, we radioed in to check in with the fire ranger, um, the fire lookout, who was monitoring our progress. So when we radioed to check in, um, he radioed back that a man named John had just come by the fire station and was wondering if his daughter, that's me, could meet him on the trail. I finally um, reached my daughter. When we found each other, we both burst out crying, both in happiness and, in my case, with profound relief um, that I had made it. You know, I've seen my dad in various stages of wrecked in our lives, but he was, like, really wrecked. He was very sweaty, covered in dirt. His pants were ripped, um, and his bag was ripped. And as he started coming down the trail, as he saw me, he burst into tears. And I... Up until that point, I'd only seen my dad cry twice in my entire life. And so seeing him cry, coming to see me, I was incredibly scared that somebody had, like, died back home and I hadn't heard about it. But, um, no, he was just that happy to see me. When I plan a trip now after that experience in the Frank Church, I do a couple things differently. Uh, one is... I remember how my ego got me into trouble, and I make sure that I have, first of all, a plan B, so that if plan A is not working, I don't have to come up with something new on the fly. Secondly, uh, I am now always taking an in-reach device with me so that I can communicate via satellite messenger. And third, this doesn't happen before the trip, but more so on the trip. If I get in a situation where I recognize a small choice that could lead to a big problem, I sit down and think about it a lot harder than I did on that particular trip. When we started doing interviews for this episode, I hoped survival could be reduced to a science, to a clear formula. While it's true science can help each of us be a little smarter out there, all the research in the world won't entirely remove the mystery of why some people survive and others don't. 
We can train for emergencies, avoid unnecessary risk, and weigh each decision carefully. But in the end, the very thing that draws us to the wilderness, it's wild and unpredictable, means that we'll never know for sure what's going to happen out there. And that's a good thing. This episode was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, with story editing and sound design by Matt Coderre. Our associate producers are Zoe Gates, Amelia Arvison, and David Gleisner. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Thank you to Dr. John Leach, Dr. Donald Grayson, and John and Abby Dorn for your research, stories, and perspectives. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review. 